Hello everyone, my name's Sean. And I am Zoe. And we're here today with Martin Heng, Accessible Tourism Manager for Lonely Planet. How are you, Martin? Very good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. We are honoured to have you here today. So how's the weather in uh, Australia right now? Pretty warm, I guess? Uh, not yet. No, no, no. Just, um, it's, it's, I think it's um, 11, 11, to, 11 to 17 today, so not, not terribly warm yet. Oh, it's similar to Vancouver weather right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably is, yeah. <laughs> Well, I know the hot summer is coming your way, so we're going to get in snow pretty soon here. Okay, so I'm just going to start with a definition of accessible tourism, which I believe will provide some clarity to our listeners. So Darcy and Dixon, their quote is, accessible tourism enables people with access requirements, including mobility, vision, hearing, and cognitive dimensions of access, to function independently and with equity and dignity through the delivery of universally designed tourism products, services, and environments. This definition is inclusive of all people, including those traveling with children in prams, people with disabilities, and seniors. Do you believe this is the best definition of accessible tourism, Martin? I think this is a great definition. I don't know about the best, but it's certainly the best that I've come across because it references so many things. I think most importantly, two things. Universally designed. The the reference to universal design is very important. Universal design is becoming gladly, thankfully, a bit of a buzzword. So there are seven principles of universal design, but fundamentally what it means is that you design something for the maximum possible use with the minimum possible need for adaptation. So you're designing things with the widest possible use in mind. Now, it's all very well to say, let's make something accessible. But if you didn't have to say that and everything was automatically accessible, then there would be no problems about adhering to accessibility standards, auditing for accessibility. If everything was designed from the ground up as being universally accessible, then the world would be a better place for so many people. Um, And the other important thing about this quotation is it's not limited by any means to people with disability, but it's looking at accessibility from, as it says, a whole of life approach. So it's, you know, from cradle to grave, literally, but also kind of looking at different people's circumstances, whether they're young children with kind of not quite the motor skills of older people or older people who don't have the quite motor skills of, of when they were younger or parents with prams. Um, so, as I say, it's a whole-of-life approach, an inclusive approach, inclusive of everybody in society. So it is really important. References tourism, products, services, and environments. So this, this, I believe, is a very good definition because it's so broad-ranging and because it covers a lot of the bases in a very succinct manner. Yeah, we agree. I find this topic like, very thought-provoking. I'm really looking forward to talking to you more about this today in tonight's podcast. Uh, So, Martin, you joined Lonely Planet in 1999. Congratulations on 20 years with the company. That's amazing. How did you begin your employment with one of the largest travel guide publishers in the world? It must have been a lot different 20 years ago. Uh, It was in some ways very, very different. In some ways, you know, things have changed back to something similar to when I started. I mean, when I started, I was probably one of the first hires into the company who's somebody who had a professional background in editing. So I was hired as a senior editor rather than as somebody on the ground floor. And they hired me because I was a career editor already. I'd already been a professional editor since 1985 when I started editing in London, England. But also, I've been traveling for 10 years, so I was a really good fit for Lonely Planet. I've been traveling a lot. Um, I'd lived in Asia for 10 years, and I was a professional editor, so it was a natural fit for me and for them, I think. 
Um, and I've been very happy working with them for many years. I've had many different job titles and been through three different owners and four major restructures. And we've obviously Lonely Planet back in the end of the 90s. The internet was just a very nascent thing and wasn't really kind of impacting the business. We had the, at the time the largest online community in the world in terms of the thorn tree. Yeah. Um, but we never managed to capitalize on that. And unfortunately, because, you know, that's turned out to be our main competitor now is, is online communities and, and rating websites such as TripAdvisor. Yeah. So, I mean, we went through a stage, we, we've been, Lonely Palace has been looking to create a revenue generating online model really since I joined the company back in 1999. Uh, and I remember back in 1999, we had a project run by some visionaries called Knowledge Bank, where... We, where the vision was we would put all our information into a big database. Now, of course, this is now commonplace, and we've done it. You know, 20 years later, we have a content management system, just like many other companies have a content management system. Back then, it was visionary, but we didn't, again, we didn't progress that as quickly as we ought. But the interesting thing was what we did was to create a shared publishing platform about six, seven years ago, um, where all our content went into a content management system. The idea was to spin that off into digital, into app, and into book product. Um, that is an experiment that we've now kind of turned back the clock to when I started, which was to have a separate commissioning structure for books and for digital. Because it, it turned out that you know, having a central contract, content management system wasn't serving either part of the business as well as it might. So we've gone back to the model when I first started, which was to kind of separate digital and print and to commission separately for the two media, which I think is probably the right decision because people need different content in the different media and people read differently and need different things from them. So we've just gone through a restructure less than six months ago, probably. So we're still working our way through that. That's awesome. It's really great to hear that you have such a strong connection with the company. You've been able to stick with them for so long. Yes, they've been for me a great employer, and certainly, you know, I had um, I had an accident and and and, and broke my neck um, at a, in a bike accident in 2010, and they they really stood by me and made the transition to my new circumstances a lot easier, and um, not this most recent restructure, but the one before that, seven years ago or six seven years ago, a position was created specifically for me as accessible travel manager, and at the time. I don't know that anybody knew where that would lead. I was given a title and I was left to make of it what I would. Um, now, from the circumstances, whatever, for whatever circumstances, it turned out to be quite an ambassadorial role. So I've ended up not just creating accessible travel products, as in you know, physical guide and things that we distribute to the public, but also I've um, become a an international a speaker on the international circuit. So I spend a lot of time. Um, I spend very often. I, I'm off um, speaking at conferences. So you know the role has turned out to be quite ambassadorial. And and, and I guess um, putting Lonely Planet in a in the accessible travel space, and that's my role with very little kind of supervision or kind of direction from the company, um, which has been really good to have that freedom to do that. It's great to hear the empowerment they give you in this role. So in 2016, the, the UNWTO designated World Tourism Day to Tourism for All, Universal Accessibility. 
Can you tell us and the listeners how much this changed everything and how it helped draw attention to the topic? Look, I think um, UNWTO designated World Tourism Day um, for Tourism for All in 2016 because there were already strong currents and a realization that the tourist tourism industry would need to address accessibility. There were already leading national tourism organizations taking steps and those tourism organizations were working on this prior to 2016. What 2016 did was, you know, by, by such but an esteemed and important body in tourism designating World Tourism Day to Tourism for All, to Accessible Tourism, was to further raise awareness. And I've noticed since then that the tourism industry more generally has set up and taken notice and certainly in terms of my engage, speaking engagements they certainly increased after that and other very important tourism bodies are beginning to pay attention to accessibility in a way they didn't before 2016 such as the Pacific Asia Tourism Association such as the Global Sustainable Tourism Council such as IATA all of these organizations are now including accessibility as a topic in their conferences and as a topic that they need to, they see they need to be addressing for the future of tourism. So it's very refreshing to hear this. This is good news. It is very good news. And it's good news not just for the disability communities, disabled communities, but also for an aging demographic who would not necessarily identify as disabled, but who nonetheless have the same or similar access needs as segments of the disabled communities. Yeah. Um, for, for example, just it, it really whatever kind of aspect of disability you look at, whether it's vision or hearing or mobility or cognitive, all of these different forms of impairment are not just experienced by people with either congenital or acquired disability, but are also experienced by people who are aging into conditions that affect their hearing, their sight, their mobility and their cognition. That's fantastic. So it's evident that developing countries are far behind in terms of offering accessibility, whereas developed countries like Germany are one of the most advanced. Can I ask for your thoughts on this gap? Uh, okay, right. Um, developed countries, obviously, there are a number of factors that work in their favor, and most notably, um, they have a lot more resources in terms of money and in terms of people power. In, uh, sorry, in terms of kind of uh, strategy and, and um, money that's put into tourism promotion. They also tend to be kind of more able to put resources into, I guess, what you might call socially responsible policies. Um, developing countries don't have this leisure. Developing countries are much more concerned about sort of survival. So if you're looking at, look at it in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, so it's probably the most simple way of looking at it, that the more developed countries have moved up in that hierarchy of needs and are now looking at things that are less important to basic survival and more important to making life better for less advantaged citizens and, in, in this case, tourists. But what we find in developed countries is that people are less, much less, um, generally less willing to um, and less comfortable um, 
coming to the assistance of someone with, who's struggling or someone with access needs. Certainly in my experience, I've found in less developed countries, a lack of infrastructure, a lack of either building standards or adherence to building standards or oversight into building standards being adhered to is made up for by the willingness of populations and the willingness of people to step in and help whenever you need help, whenever you need assistance, either getting up a curb, getting through a doorway, getting up a pipe of stairs. Um, the people are so very often so quick to help much quicker than in more developed countries. So what's, what happens really is that the deficit in hard infrastructure is made up for by people power in developing countries. And I've found that in many places, and particularly so in, in places like Thailand, where people are not only quick to help, but also you don't feel like it's a big deal. You don't feel obliged uh, in the same way as if I were in Australia and people were coming, coming to help me, and I'd feel... Um, I'd feel like pe people were putting themselves out of their way, or uh, whereas in Thailand and other developing countries, it's much more natural and much more naturally received on my part, I think. This is interesting. I didn't think about this, but yeah. So um, you mentioned that when, when we first met that Australia's tourism strategy had no mention of accessibility in their recent releases for future, um, whereas Portugal has followed Spain and begun to focus on accessibility. So like, we were generally shocked to hear that Australia and other major nations around the world, not just Australia, had no mention of this. Are you surprised at all by this? Uh, no, frankly. Um, not in terms of Australia. There's been little or no leadership in terms of Tourism Australia supporting accessible travel or inclusive travel. Like Canada, we have a state and federal system of government. So there are three tiers of government. You've got federal, state and local council. And in fact, local councils are probably doing more than more than, than federal and probably more and more than states in terms of focusing on accessibility. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all. It's ignored largely, almost completely by Tourism Australia. Um, there has been one study that was carried out for Tourism Research Australia, and it was a study on the value of accessible tourism to the Queensland and Victorian tourist economies. Now, this kind of study has been done before. It's been done in the UK, notably, in, in I think, 2015, when they quantified the value of the purple pound, as it's called, to tourism, and it came over at £12 billion per annum. Um, what the study here, in the Tourism Research Australia study, found was that uh, the accessible travel market was large and it was large and growing faster than any other segment. In fact, it was found to be larger than the, the kind of much-vaunted Chinese tourism sector. Um, which is interesting <laughs> yeah. because nobody's actually taken this up. So we have the first step in any kind of towards any kind of move towards putting resources and in, into accessible tourism is to quantify the market because unless there is a quantifiable market and quantifiable returns, nothing is going to happen. So the first step was taken by this initial study into the size of the market, and it was very promising. This was. 2017, I think. It was quite promising because the market was shown to be very large and growing very quickly, but then nothing was ever done about it. So that was really disappointing. Um, the only state that has done really anything about accessible tourism, as far as I know, in any kind of substantive way, is South Australia. Now, what South Australia has done last year is to introduce accessible tourism awards, which I think is a fantastic first step because it does... 
it, it's, it moves away from the mentality of legislating and forcing businesses to become compliant with accessibility standards and instead rewards businesses and recognizes businesses um, that are making efforts towards accessibility. So it's the, it's the carrot rather than the stick approach. And I think that's a really good approach. But South Australia so far is the only state in Australia that's doing that. Oh, I found it extraordinary. So like, what are they actually focusing on right now? What is their, their current kind of mindset? Um, Australian tourism. Australian yeah. tourism has just released, they've just released their new campaign, which has created a lot of controversy because it's based around the word philosophy with um, spelled P-H-I-L-A-U-S-O-P <laughs> um, and so on. Philosophy. <laughs> Um, wow. Which is a play on words, which people are thinking, you know, if this is a, a campaign aimed at foreigners coming to Australia, many of whom the first language isn't English, how are they going to receive this kind of play on words that they don't really understand? Um, and it's, the, the whole tourism campaign philosophy is around, you know, what 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 differentiates Australia from other places, and that is easygoing, happy-go-lucky kind of attitude. Um, I don't know that that is. Well, certainly it hasn't been very well received in the two weeks since it's been released. And there's absolutely no mention of any substantive work to be done in the, in the accessible travel sphere, which is really disappointing considering most other developed economies are actually putting effort into promoting accessible tourism, certainly in Europe, less so in North America, I think. Okay, so you've mentioned uh, Australia and how they're not doing is great and it's very disappointing. Um, how is Canada's uh, future tourism strategy and how is accessible tourism often overlooked over here, perhaps? Um, look, to be honest, I don't know much about Canada's tourism policy. The only thing I know about Canada is that similar to other countries in the world, such as the UK, such as Australia and the USA, it's actually the national, it's actually the parks that are, that are taking the lead in terms of making facilities more accessible. And I think particularly um, in British Columbia and Alberta, the parks are leading the way in terms of making their facilities and making their the natural world more accessible to people with disabilities. And that's certainly the case in Victoria as well. Parks Victoria are doing more than any other body in the state towards um, inclusion. That's um, amazing, especially because you would think that it would be a lot harder for the parks to make it more accessible rather than maybe other destinations. How are they uh, making them more accessible in all the parks? Um, well, they're running different kinds of programs, and they're also using programs that, that encourage people with disabilities to access their parks. And they're doing this in two different, I mean, two main ways. And one of the, one of the main things, and really important, not just in parks, but in all areas of tourism, is they are providing information so that people can make up their own minds whether or not something, place, or an activity is suitable for them, because they have enough of information to be able to judge for themselves. Um, I always say that you know, there is no free choice without adequate information to make that choice on. So the first thing that the businesses and facilities need to do is to make public the information about accessibility so people can find out for themselves and decide for themselves whether that facility or activity or environment is suitable for them. And that's what Parks Victoria has done. And I believe that's what National Parks in the UK, I've just been researching accessible walks in the UK. Now, every single national park in the UK has a section on accessibility and specifically accessible walks. Um, that's 
not the case worldwide, but I know that parts of Victoria have done something similar. They, parts of Victoria have audited a lot of their, to let people know where they have accessible parking, where they have accessible toilets, where they have trails that are uh, wheelchair and, and pushchair or buggy friendly, and to let people know where they have accessible picnic facilities. Um, what the surface is like in car parks, you know, on trails, so that people can make up their own minds with the right information as to whether or not they can go somewhere. So rather than going somewhere thinking they might be able to enjoy the facilities and being disappointed. So the first steps to be taken and are being taken by the parks, and that is providing adequate information for people to make up their own minds, to make you know, informed choices about where they want to go. Okay. So... Over 20% of the global population will be over 65 by 2050. So the baby boomer population are beginning to retire right now and they are the first generation that are looking to spend their hard-earned money instead of leaving it towards their children. So with an aging population and better healthcare, better medical services, we truly hope accessible tourism will begin to gain more traction. Do you believe this will start to happen in the next 10 years? I do. I do. I think, you know, we have the CRPD, we have in America the ADA and in Britain and Australia the DDA. We have legislation that protects the rights of people with disabilities and seeks to promote a more inclusive society. But I don't believe that treaties and legislation are going to move the dial significantly in a world that's dominated by, or the, a world motivated primarily by economic concerns. So I believe that the retiring baby boomers and the increase in an aged population, or what's known as the greying of the population, is going to shift the dial because yeah. these retirees are retiring with funds and with time and with the attitude that they will enjoy their retirement. So I personally know three or four different retirees who take up to four overseas trips a year, particularly in Europe, where it's so easy to get to travel overseas. So travel is, is, is actually forming a really important part of people's retirement. And it's attracting this market that's going to shift the dial. It's not doing the right thing that's going to shift the dial. So, yes, I do believe that the aging of the population will make things easier for people with disabilities and access needs generally, um, because there is the economic incentive for businesses to cater to a, a broader and growing market. Yeah, it's certainly a compelling time right now. As, we, as you say, the dial's about to turn. Uh, yeah, so we were wondering if the international symbol for disability doesn't help the situation with sending mixed signals to society. Um, I don't think it helps at all, and this is a message that I often give in my talks, is that the only real benefit for the international symbol for disability is it's universally recognized what it is. And I've even been in, in talks where I've asked what people understand by the symbol and they say, oh, it's the wheelchair symbol. Well, yeah. it's not the wheelchair symbol. This is the international symbol for disability. Sadly, it's made people equate disability with wheelchair users. On any study, whether it be for a national, uh, for a national census or whether it be for tourism research purposes, um, the number of wheelchair users or the percentage of wheelchair users as a percentage of the total disabled population is always under 10%. It's usually quantified between 6 and 10%. 
So although people equate disability with wheelchair users, we are the most visible uh, members of the disabled communities, but we are such a small percentage of of the disabled population that it really skews perceptions. And the problem really with that is that when people think of disability, they think of wheelchairs, and then they think, okay, so how can we cater for people with wheelchairs? And it becomes an expense. So we have to put ramps in, we have to put toilets in, we have to make our premises all flat, step-free, barrier-free for wheelchairs. And therefore, they ignore huge sections of the society who have other access needs, which can be catered to for a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the investment and a fraction of the effort. Um, And people with vision impairment and hearing impairment particularly can be catered for so much more cost-effectively. But they're actually a greater proportion of the disabled community than wheelchair users. So, yes, I don't believe that the international symbol has many of the disability, many of the members of the disability communities very well at all. Is there a way, um, we're surrounded by talented students at this university and um, we're graduating, is there any way that young tourism professionals that are entering the workforce, any way that they can help with this situation? Um, I think the main thing is it's really about education. So self-education in this case, I mean, looking into accessible travel than to just look at, okay, is somewhere wheelchair accessible? And this is one of the things that I have against the proliferation of user-generated content which are rating the accessibility of venues. Are they really looking at this from the single lens? Are they wheelchair accessible? You know, for young tourism professionals coming into employment, they really, the best thing they could do is to look more broadly and to say, okay, what are the access needs of people um, either with a disability or people or with a congenital disability or people who are aging into disability or people who acquire a disability? What actually are we talking about here and what can we do to make their experience more seamless and easier? How can we make it more convenient? Whether it's providing better color contrast, whether it's providing large print black and white menus, things that are almost cost free, but make a huge difference. Whether it's being able to having a better lighting so that people can read more easily, yeah. whether it's having more benches so people can sit down periodically when they're going around visiting a park. Things that are not actually that expensive, but make a huge difference to a vast majority of people who are not represented by the wheelchair symbol. Yeah, this is very interesting. It seems to be like we need to be more strategic as, as students graduate and enter the workforce. We need to be like, look to the future a bit more and be more smarter of our decisions. I think just looking at the market in a more clear-eyed way, in a more informed way, yeah. rather than thinking disability equals wheelchair equals ramp. Um, that that's a very narrow kind yes. of perception, but it's one sadly that many tourism businesses uh, take on. Um, this is going to be too expensive. We're going to have to put ramps everywhere. I'm going to have to renovate the whole property. No, you don't have to renovate the whole. Not everywhere is going to be wheelchair accessible. There are heritage overlays over many buildings that that make it difficult for them to be modified. There are other places that are impossible to be modified for wheelchair accessibility. But just because they're not wheelchair accessible doesn't mean they shouldn't be accessible to other members of the disabled communities. Yeah, so just as we um, we begin to like wrap up this podcast today, I can't help but mention the amazing book that you've done on uh, creating access to people out there that gives you all the information you need. And can you just talk a bit about your book that you've made? And we'd love to promote this more on our podcast release. Um, the major achievement um, is, is for me to put together, as I said, the, the world's largest database or collection of online resources for traveling with a disability called Accessible Travel Online Resources. 
which in 2016 was recognised by the UNWTO as an example of best practice in accessible tourism. And we're going back again to the need for information. I recognised this need very early on and realised that people spend a lot of time trawling through the internet trying to find the information they need. So I started to put together a list of useful websites um, gathered from my bookmarks and then it grew and grew and I'm now into my third edition and, and I'm working on the fourth. Everyone grows bigger and bigger and it's divided up by country. It's also divided up by travel agents, commercial operators and, and also sporting active holidays or active activities, sports and activities and also NGOs and other kind of non-government, non-profit organizations. So it's a really very rich growing resource and it enables people to plan ahead because basically the greater your access needs, the greater your need to plan. And unless you have the resources for planning, it gets very difficult and you can spend a lot of time doing it. So the main aim behind producing this is to, is to assist people to plan their trips away. And the main accompaniment to this is an accessible travel phrasebook where I gathered together 100 full words and phrases and had them translated into 35 different languages. So people can ask in 35 different languages through a ramp, for example, or can you give me a hand or can you reach that for me? Simple phrases that wouldn't necessarily be a regular guidebook. Yeah, well, I'm just blown away by this book. I've already shared it with my parents who are both retired and pushing 70 right now. They're going to kill me for saying that. But it's very impressive work that you've done on Lonely Planet. I'm lucky to have you on that book and what you've created for the world. Thank you very much. So we just got one last question to ask you. It's a very hard question, but we're going to test you out right now. Zoe's going to ask it for you. If you could be one imaginary or extinct animal, what would you be and why? I think I would have to be a flying animal of some sort. I think the experience of being able to fly would be fantastic. And that's got nothing to do with my current state of disability. I think flying must be the most liberating uh, experience that you can imagine, that you can experience. I went paragliding and hot air ballooning when I was in Costa Brava earlier this year. And it is absolutely phenomenal to be up there in the air looking down at the earth. So I would say a bird or a dragon, probably. A dragon. Oh. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Martin. I think I agree with your answer on being on a flying animal as well. And uh, we'd like to wrap up the podcast. We want to say thank you so much for joining us today all the way from Australia. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Martin. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. So how did you like that? Please send us your feedback on this episode by visiting patacapu.com. This podcast is hosted by Capilano University student volunteers. If you would like to get involved with the production of our podcast, please send us an email through our website, patacapu.com. Special thanks to Capilano Radio Club and the School of Tourism Management. See you next time. Have something to say about what you heard on Capilano Radio? Want to get involved with the Capilano Radio team? Are you an artist looking for a platform to showcase your work? Drop us a line at capilanoradio at gmail.com or visit our website at capilanoradio.com.